Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Whether we've been creating elementary stone tools, traveling into space, or developing our own artificial intelligences, since the beginning of time, humans have been utterly fascinated by how our world works. Design thinking has exploded into the 21st century workplace. It's a methodology designed to put humans at the centre of what we do. This series explores where it came from and where it's going. From a, a methodology to help design products to a philosophy for life, design thinking is changing the world. That's Richard Adams and I'm Sam Fry. Last time we dug deeper into what design thinking looks like in practice, exploring concepts like co-creation, empathy, failure and trust. Today, we're going to look forward. How is design thinking changing and what does the future look like? When companies adopt design thinking, one of the main challenges they face is getting colleagues to understand what it actually is. Robert Huckman Jr. from Tangible UX often sees very different ideas when he begins working with companies. Every organization that, that we jump into and that, you know, we start working with a team there, we find some different flavor of it or some different, you know, uh, understanding of, of how we're going to go about working uh, that way. And, you know, a lot of people hear design thinking and they think that they're already doing it. And so sometimes you're pushing back against sort of misguided ideas or kind of that company's cultural DNA that has sort of been baked in over time. Sometimes you're, you're working against old habits. Sometimes you're working against old perceptions. It can be difficult to change people's mindsets or to know whether you truly believe in the same things, let alone the same way to work. Robert continues. Design thinking becomes this, uh, this really important idea to companies, but they also don't really understand when it's working well. And, you know, it's such a uh, foreign concept in some places that they think they can do without it until suddenly they realize that they can't. So, you know, I I, I see a lot of companies sort of getting the idea of design thinking in concept, but not necessarily in practice. Um, And once they, even if they do get it in practice, they don't uh, understand how to make it stick so that it becomes part of their organizational DNA. Robert has seen that design thinking solves a problem for companies, but the idea of design thinking doesn't always land with them. This is why most companies have found that they have evolved their own definitions of design thinking over time, based on what resonates with people. Here's Jessica Tremblay from IBM. What we always like to say is everything is a prototype, right? So you might go into it with one way, um, but, I mean, design thinking as a practice, I mean, it's still relatively new, I mean, compared to the scientific method and other ways of working, right? I mean, Agile agile as well, It's it's it has its own history and its own uh, methods of adoption, but um, it needed to evolve along with a company the size of IBM. We're an enterprise, so we are 380,000 plus human beings, right, spread across the globe who need a way to align and work together. So 
Um, I think having, yeah, having that first way of, okay, and this is what traditional design thinking is, but then bringing in a way for us to be able to scale the practice. And it's not just the loop, by the way. I mean, enterprise design thinking specifically, what makes it different is uh, the keys and the principles. So um, it's, it's Hills, Playback, Sponsor Users paired with uh, all the three principles and the loop itself, which that's that's what makes enterprise design thinking specifically um, IBM's flavor or version of it that's able to work with large enterprise level companies. How works is also from IBM. I've definitely seen it change. I mean, IBM itself changes the framework and that's because we sort of turned it into something that was even more scalable. That was like for us, like we needed to emphasize iteration a little bit more was the main component of it. So we, we kind of changed the framework to more focus on iteration. I think maybe um, just stepping back a second in terms of like how it's changing. I think as you can see, when you do the Google search and there's a million answers, there's a lot of iterations of it that are happening. And I think that's fantastic. You can kind of see the way that people are like trying to um, improve upon this thing. I think there's really interesting things happening right now around um, inclusion. For example, there's, there's like a, a lot of good conversations happening around like design thinking does emphasize inclusion and collaboration and but the question around like, does it over overemphasize empathy and doesn't bring in enough of that participation emphasis on inclusion to the extent where, you know, you might have like a very rich population designing for a poor population without including them or uh, a male population designing for a female population without engaging them. So I think there's really fantastic conversations happening about how to improve the framework and those are happening constantly. And I think that's a, that's a really good thing. Uh, and that's happening, you know, as we speak. So we're moving in a in a great direction. I think from the moment, like from the 80s and 90s with IDEO, there's so much more richness to how this methodology can be applied to different contexts. We've talked before in previous episodes about how the wider design industry has been sceptical about the term of design thinking. The two things may have similarities, but they are not the same thing. It's interesting to see how young innovators and designers who have grown up in a design thinking world view these changes. Lisa Ayama is a design student at the Royal College of Art. I think it is really encouraging to see that, you know, companies are not necessarily sort of losing faith in design thinking altogether, um, which was like one of the concerns that came out of, of like the whole like, oh, design thinking doesn't work kind of sentiments. Yeah, I th- I think it is like something that that would that would keep developing. I mean, to be honest, like telling people to be a designer and then like to or or think like a designer and then to you know do a couple of workshops that use post its and you know expect them to by the end of the two hours be able to think like a designer. I think that is really too much to ask. But I think that's where like this other side of design thinking that I was talking about, almost like the self-reflection of like, you know, even if you take the, the, the empathy square, for example, like it's not just to do with like you completely like forgetting about yourself and then like stepping into other people's shoes. It's like you are always going to have your way of interpreting things and that in itself should be embraced. I guess I am just quite excited to see where it all goes. It is definitely like an area that's, you know, really sort of 
got a lot of attention both in like academia and in more corporate contexts. So I think it I think it will continue to develop. In many ways, design thinking is embracing its own principles. Design thinking itself is iterating and developing in line with its own practices and philosophies. Two, value. A question that has been asked more and more of methodologies and processes is what value do they bring? Is design thinking bringing value or cost? This is something that Robert Hockman Jr. has been thinking a lot about. At Tangible UX, they have formalized an approach to answering this question. Value-centered innovation. Value-centered innovation is, is our term for an innovation methodology that it draws from and builds on design thinking and it draws from and builds on agile software development and it draws from and builds on lean practices as in from lean manufacturing. So we've kind of, you know, over the years, we've looked around a lot of different teams, a lot of different projects, a lot of different companies, and we've identified, you know, what the, the, the common problems are across those companies. They're all working in those, you know, sequential chain processes based on manufacturing models. And there's not a lot of collaboration and there's definitely not a lot of accountability where there's almost no measurement. Um, and that is to say, you know, how do we know that the researchers uh, and the and the designers and the engineers produced something that actually or achieved the, the business objective that they set out to achieve? Hardly anybody is tracking that stuff. And so how do we know that design is doing its job? How do we know that engineering is doing its job? How do we know anybody is doing their job? Uh, and so with, with value-centered innovation, what we try to do is we, we incorporate those design thinking practices, such as, you know, interviewing and listening and, and sketching and uh, rapid prototyping and validating ideas and things like that. We take all that good stuff from design thinking. And then we pull some other stuff from Agile, which is the idea that you're supposed to pivot based on new information. And it's the idea that you're supposed to be able to, you know, sort of fail fast, right? I actually really dislike that term. I think of it, you know, you want to, I think you want to learn fast, not, not fail fast. You want to learn fast. So we, we take what's, you know, those great design thinking practices, those great Agile uh, principles, and then we take lean principles, which are all about adding value and reducing waste in your process, in your product, um, streamlining uh, the way in which you deliver something of value to your recipient, whether that's a user or a customer. It's about, you know, not over-supplying uh, design work or research, like only doing, you know, as much as you need to at a given time in order to be able to act and do something. Uh, and all those efficiency methods that come with the lean uh, management process, we pull from all of those things and we put them together and we combine that with the idea of tying every single thing that we do to a business objective. So no matter what we do in that strategy workshop, we're going to, you know, we're going to come, up with, come out of that workshop with a bunch of potential solutions, right? But the next step is that we're going to go test those solutions. We're going to prioritize them and test, which, you know, test the next most important thing. Are we making assumptions here? Let's go find out. Is this a good idea? Let's go find out. Is this the best way to implement the solution? Let's go find out. So we run rapid experiments. Um, so we take all of that stuff from design thinking and agile and lean, and we combine it with rapid experimentation and measurable uh, effects. From so we, so we design according to a hypothesis, and we 
um, measure the measure the effects of our tests to those hypotheses. And that tells us whether we're actually getting closer to the business objective or not. So we actually have a way to gauge uh, progress as we go along. Different companies and individuals within companies have differing views on what value they are optimizing for. Here's Amanda Foreman from Zone, a cognizant business. Various stakeholders have different competing visions of what valuable is. So you might have this department who's their idea of values, they want to sell more stuff or this and this other department wants to, you know, reduce, I don't know, reduce waste. And this other department is really concerned about employee well-being and they, they might all seem at odds. So I think that is very challenging. But I think that that, that is that's sort of part of the unique challenge of it is how do you help people align around what's really valuable and what's the priority, right? All of those that we spoke to said that there's a challenge aligning businesses around a piece of value that they are optimizing. But they all agreed that design thinking was an invaluable part of that process. Here's Hal Wertz again. The reason why business and technology are using design thinking is because it provides a lot of value. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the and the value, the value has been documented to be, I, I think, a lot of different components to it. So like one in terms of like speed of outcomes, being able to get to the right solution, the fastest Two in terms of like market fit, like being able to make sure you're, you're making the right thing and you're not going in the wrong direction. And there's, there's like some really, really interesting things also around like in terms of collaboration, like actual metrics around uh, employee engagement and like team engagement that like actually people enjoy working on design thinking teams more than they enjoy working on other teams or as is potentially obvious like has really powerful organizational benefits design thinking advocates and practitioners clearly think it's providing value to companies which are helping them then with their bottom line but could design thinking help with making society better what about that type of value Hal Wurtz is equally interested in this. I'm also interested in terms of value, in terms of a more, I don't know, and maybe it's wishy-washy and maybe other people are like the more compelling thing for some people is thinking about the bottom line. And you can do that with design thinking and you should do it and you can prove it. It works. Um, And in some way, money is just a signifier for real um, efficiency and and value in other ways in our society. Uh, But Personally, the thing that I think is so powerful about design thinking is the way that it gets us thinking about problems differently that I think will return in ways that are much more substantial than than a single company's bottom line, right? Which is about like helping people, giving people the tools to think divergently, helping people connect to one another in more meaningful ways and how they're solving problems. And also giving people sort of the allowance, the the, the freedom, the encouragement, the, the power, the empowerment to, to think about really big problems and doing that together. I mean, I think the sort of implications of using design thinking and teaching a broad population about it, like sort of percolate out to that level, even beyond the, the bottom line answer. Amanda Foreman has similar thoughts. So I see that as being a little bit of the future of design thinking in that sense, where it becomes very grounded in sort of the reality of the world that we're living in. 
And I think it's reframing how you can apply design methodology to solving like actual problems that need to solve a human problem or make a company more money or whatever it is that you're trying to do. Value is an interesting thing, right? Because you have, I think we've very narrowly in the past defined value as, you know, how much money does somebody make and shareholder value and that was one of the things that drew me to the MBA program that I applied to because it was more focused on like societal value. And it's not value is, is value is in terms of like monetary returns is like very one-sided. And I think sometimes we're like a little bit too obsessed with that <laughs> at times. Here's Joseph Pakal. The question I have is like, yes, which values do you optimize for is, is a really big question, right? And so many businesses optimize for, optimize for economic values, year-over-year growth, profit, shareholder returns, et cetera, et cetera. Like, we have really good systems for, for sort of thinking about uh, the, the economic value. I suppose you can look at value as the sort of intangible quality of how well are you solving person's problems with the product um, that you're building. As companies have more conversations about the value they optimize for, some are questioning the purpose of these organizations in the first place. Here, Joseph continues. Yes, like what value do you optimize for? Is this economic value, uh, which we're very good at? Is this customer experience that you choose as, as, as your focus? Or is this reducing cost of your technology? Is this a question of employee experience? And so on and so forth. Some of them are softer, some of them are harder, some of them are economically driven, some of them are sort of more pointed at quality of life perhaps for the organization or for experiential quality of the users of your products. They are still within the context of the product itself, within the organization and within the, the, the sort of economic momentum of that individual illegal person. And it, it's very self-focused, very self-centered. Um, sort of brings me to Milton Friedman and his thought of like the only responsibility of uh, a business is to to generate profit. I think that's a ridiculous thought. And we have seen that, no, that just simply doesn't lead to good things. Yeah, like this, this whole argument of mar the market being this beautiful self-correcting mechanism where every c consumer is perfectly informed to make uh, to vote with their dollars and make decisions and, and drive companies to to change through those means while being perfectly, beautifully, coercively manipulated into wanting things they don't need. Or his argument, shareholders are the evangelists for social, uh, for social good. How are the evangelists for social good where the shareholders are completely far, the farthest removed player from the product, the farthest removed player from the impact on the ground somewhere in, in the Avery Coast where you're buying cocoa, and they're in the game primarily to get returns on their investments, right? Perhaps the value that we all need to consider is the social human values. Businesses have a big role here. Here's Amanda Foreman. And I think that that's the responsibility that we have as as leaders in business is to be those agents of change. Um, because I think that businesses really drive consumer behavior in so many ways. I took a class one time around circular economy. And one of our like challenges that we did was to go, I think it was just a day. I think it was literally go a day without using plastic. And it was pretty much impossible. 
Um, and we were all like trying, we were like actively trying, like, I am not going to use plastic today. No, like single use plastic. And I was thinking, you know, here I am, like, I'm interested in this area. I'm taking a class on this. I'm in a group of people that were all looking at this and it is literally impossible for me to do this. I'm like your normal consumer, their choices have been already made for them by the companies that are supplying goods. And most people aren't going to make difficult choices. They're going to do what's easy to them. And so therefore, the choices are made by the businesses. And so then as businesses and as designers and as consultants, the way that we design our products and services really is how society, what choices they're going to make. Large organizations, especially businesses, have an increasingly important role in designing how the world works. Globalization has enabled massive global networks that are increasingly using artificial intelligence and robotic process automation. Many of our systems can work autonomously. So how prepared are we to design this future world? A world where artificial intelligence and automation is embedded that may or may not have humans at the heart. Three, design thinking in a world of AI. As organizations adopt more artificial intelligence and more automated processes, a key shift for employees is that their role in technology is moving away from developing code. If they don't need to codify those processes, their role then becomes focused on interpreting data or the records of what is happening. We provide the human insight that then feeds the machines. Here's Amanda Foreman. I remember being told at one point early on in my career saying, you know, there's all sorts of different code, coding languages or things that you could learn, but ultimately that's, that's all going to be done by machines. And so what, are you, what skills are you going to develop that a machine can't do and that you can use to manage that moving forward? I mean, I think that's a fairly distant future, I would say, <laughs> at least in my mind. I, mean, I think that we talk a lot about there is a lot of great AI and there's a lot of great technological developments, but like there's also so much stuff that we still can't do that's like really basic that you like see in movies, but then you're like, oh, we actually don't even do that in real life yet. Um, so I think this whole like, you know, one day AI is going to like take over and do it all. Well, we'll see. I don't know. My, one of my friends told me like 10 years ago, websites are going the way of the dinosaurs. Nobody's ever going to use websites anymore. Well, like we're still all using websites. So I think, yeah, it'll be interesting to see like how fast that approaches. So what is our role as humans working with machines? Back to Amanda Foreman. Like, I think that human, human beings are, are unique creatures in the world. And so I think that, you know, what we bring as far as empathy and even like, this is maybe kind of ethereal sounding, but like wisdom to situations that like a machine's never going to have. 
And I think that they're not necessarily mutually exclusive because like data is so valuable. And I think data in the design thinking space is really, really important. Like I was chatting with one of my friends even today about like testing MVP models. And it's like, you can test using data, you can test talking to people, you can test, like there's a lot of different ways that you can like test whether or not something is like really useful to people. But it's the interpretation of that and the application of that data that is actually really the valuable bit. And so I think that thinking creatively and thinking as we do as humans, I think will always be valuable, even in a very data saturated world. How Wirtz builds artificial intelligence systems at IBM. Like I work on AI technology and um, we absolutely use design thinking in our process and it's uh, incredibly important. I mean, when we start thinking about technology getting more and more powerful, right? Like technology, it emphasizes, exacerbates uh, whatever our human tendencies are, right? That's what it does. And so when you think about AI, the thing that is potentially scary about it is like the way that it might exacerbate uh, the bad things about us and do it really fast. And so things might get out of control. Um, And you can see that with today's technology, right? Like Facebook, right? It's exacerbating certain tendencies that already exist in society, right? So that's what technology has the power to do. It has its power to amplify who we are. And so uh, in terms of this relationship to design thinking, I mean, I think that's why it's so important that we put in place practices that help people make things together in a thoughtful way. And the number one thing that is the most important thing that design thinking teaches is thinking about things from the impact it's going to have on a person. And so I think there's really interesting things that you can do around ethics and design thinking where you start thinking about who's impacted by this thing, right? What are the negative and positive impacts of this thing? And design thinking actually gives you the tools to start thinking about the person, which is surprisingly unintuitive when you're so wrapped up in technology or you're so wrapped up in making money for a market. It's surprisingly unintuitive to bring it back and say, who's going to be impacted by this decision? Who's going to be impacted by this technology? Or who are all the people that are going to be impacted and how are they going to be impacted? So when we, yeah, when we think about moving into the, like when we think about going forward in like this crazy technological uh, curve that we are on, there's nothing more important than us starting to take a step back and make, and having some fundamental conversations about how we make things, why we make things, and, and, and a shared framework for how we make decisions together. As technology changes the world, there is an increasing need to facilitate conversations led by data on whether we are designing a better world, not just for us as businesses or even as humans, but for the planet. Design thinking can help organisations do just that. It reframes the work, it asks questions and challenges companies to create experiences that solve problems, not make them. But where is it taught? It's often given as a corporate training, but is it taught in universities? If so, who learns it? We'll look at that next time. This episode was written, recorded and produced by Sam Fry and Richard Adams. Thank you to Alex Stanick, Amanda Foreman, Diana Kangiza, Hal Verts, Jessica Tremblay, Joseph Pakal, Lisa Ayayama, Robert Hockman, Stiliana Minkowska, 
Tassie Ellen Thompson and Dr. Yankee Lee for being interviewed. All music from this podcast is available on a Creative Commons license downloaded at freemusicarchive.org. Artists include Alex Productions, Circus Marcus, Croanda and Jazar. Don't miss an episode of this series by subscribing to this podcast feed. Also, please give us a five-star rating to help us in the podcast charts. Find out more at technique.create-hub.co.uk. Next time on Technique Explores Design Thinking. Design thinking, then, uh, is something that kind of gets introduced facilitatively throughout the process. I think it's shifted massively, even in, like, the length of the sort of the time of my career. And so... The question that I've been writing about and thinking about is how do we stop doing this where we're sort of unteaching adults and we start actually teaching uh, this at a more fundamental level? Like We learn more about what designers are taught in their education. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.